Hello and welcome to Season 2 of San Francisco Ballet's To The Point podcast. I'm Jenny Scholick, the Associate Director of Audience Engagement here at San Francisco Ballet, and I am your host for To The Point, a podcast where you can learn all about San Francisco Ballet's season and performances. In short, we're a program note that you can listen to in your lift or on BART or on your walk to the theater. We try to keep things interesting and approachable, but also give you a few nuggets of behind-the-scenes info or weird and fun facts about the production. Especially those fun facts. I have a lot to say about donkeys in this episode. Wait, donkeys? Yes, yes, bear with me. Today we're talking about Don Quixote, one of the most fun ballets in the classical repertoire, and one of the only ballets that I know of that prominently features a donkey. We've been billing it here as the ultimate ballet rom-com, and quite honestly, I think that's pretty accurate. For today's podcast, we're going to talk first a bit about the history of the production, then walk through the plot, in case it's been a minute since you last read Cervantes' thousand-page tome, and talk a little bit about our version here in San Francisco as choreographed by artistic director and principal choreographer Helgi Thomason, with a strong assist by choreographer-in-residence Yuri Posikov. I'll also give you some hint about what to look out for as you're watching. So let's see if I can make this tagline stick this year, and let's get to the point. Don Quixote, more or less as we know it today, first premiered in 1869 by the Bolshoi Ballet, as choreographed by Marius Petipa to music by Ludwig Minkus. But that statement, that it premiered in 1869 with choreography by Petipa and music by Minkus, doesn't quite encapsulate the full story of how this ballet came to be. First off, there were several previous versions, including an 18th century Don Quixote by Jean-Georges Novaire, an early 19th century ballet called Les, no- Les Noces de Gamache by Louis Milon, which focused on the same characters as Petipa's later version, and an 1839 version by Paul Taglioni. There was even a Russian version that premiered in 1808 by Charles Didelot. But it was Petipa's that really stuck, and knowing Petipa, who often borrowed, and yes, that was borrowed in quotation marks, from other choreographers, he likely was inspired in various ways by these earlier productions. Petipa, a French choreographer by way of Italy and Belgium and Spain, who spent the bulk of his career in Russia, wasn't usually associated with the Bolshoi Ballet in Moscow, but was instead at the time second ballet master at the Mariinsky Ballet in St. Petersburg. So how did he end up in Moscow? The company there was in fairly dire straits and lacked a full-time ballet master. So the powers that be, read the government, tried to convince Petipa to take up residence there. Although that didn't come to pass, he ended up becoming the first ballet master at the Mariinsky Theater, Petipa did spend quite a bit of time in Moscow in the 1860s and created both Le Corsaire and Don Quixote for that theater. Originally, Petipa was supposed to work with a trusted colleague on the creation of Don Quixote, the composer César Pugni, who was also based in St. Petersburg. But Pugni was ill. He would actually die in January of 1870, and so Petipa had to turn to the Bolshoi's resident composer, Minkus. As with many ballets of the period, the composers worked to fit the plot, Petipa's desired dance steps, and even, Simon Morrison tells us in his book, Bolshoi Confidential, the props. 
A prop maker had managed to build a piece that showed tears of laughter rolling down the face of the moon, and so the violins in the dawn's dream were meant to highlight that particular set piece. Okay, so what was the plot that Minkus had to work with? As you probably guessed, it's loosely based on the novel by Miguel de Cervantes, published in the early 17th century. And I'm really not kidding when I say loosely based. The novel, or at least my copy of the novel, clocks in at about 1,075 pages. Petipa based his ballet on four chapters from part two, or more accurately, on the three sentences that summarize those four chapters, which appear toward the beginning. If you want to delve more into all of that, please do come join us for our ballet book club, which is launching in January. But anyway, the plot. Although inspired by the book, it deviates quite a bit, following three minor characters, Kitri, Basilio, and Gamache, through a comical love triangle. And it relegates the titular Don and his squire, Sancho Panza, to secondary roles. Ironically, Cervantes actually wrote Don Quixote as a commentary, even as a parody, of the fantastical ways that Spain and its aristocracy were portrayed in chivalric novels. And yet, Padapa, seeming to miss that point in its entirety, made his ballet about reveling in the Spanishness of Spain and about a charming love story as aided by a bumbling, granted, knight-errant. And that's something that's remained true of the ballet Don Quixote in almost every iteration. There have been several versions of this ballet since the 1869 production. Petipa's original for the Bolshoi was a big success, and so he revamped it for his home theater, the Mariansky, adding a fifth act and an epilogue showing the Don's death. That's also when he added the donkey, which, yes, I really will talk about soon. The ballet was significantly modified in 1902 by Alexander Gorsky, then the ballet master in Moscow. He changed the music up, adding in excerpts from a variety of other composers. And it's that version that most inspired Posakov and Thomason in their version for San Francisco Ballet. Posakov danced the Gorsky while a principal at the Bolshoi before coming here to San Francisco. But regardless of who the choreographer is, Don Quixote has almost always been a celebration of Spain and of love, and it has a touch of humor threaded throughout. The Balanchine version is a story for another time. But speaking of stories, let's dive into the plot, and along the way, I'll highlight some key choreographic moments, and then, yes, I will finally get to that donkey. So the prologue opens in a musty study in La Mancha, Spain, circa 1550, where we meet Don Quixote, an elderly, lesser nobleman with a taste for chivalric romance novels. What's a chivalric romance, you ask? They were books that were popular in early modern Europe that told the stories of, usually, a knight-errant going about the world and doing various heroic things in a particularly chivalric or well-mannered way. Instead of focusing solely on the heroic quest, they also focused on love and courtly manners. Well, Don Quixote is a big fan of these books, and as he's reading, he falls asleep and he dreams he's a heroic knight and that he's in love with a beautiful woman named Dulcinea. But he's startled awake as a peasant from the village runs into his study, chased by a band of housewives. The peasant, Sancho Panza, has stolen a ham. Already a bit muddled and now a bit sleep-deprived, the Don begins to believe that the stories he's read are true, and that he is indeed the heroic knight he dreamed, and that Sancho, who's little more than a thief, is his noble squire. He declares that they are going to head off on an adventure. This opening prologue, like in The Nutcracker, is basically all mime, 
setting up the framing narrative for the ballet. But although you won't see much dancing, you will begin to see this relationship between the Don and Sancho evolve, and you get a hint of the comedy that's on its way. Act one is where the real dancing begins, and where you get to meet the hero and heroine, Kitri, a tavern master's daughter, and her boyfriend, Basilio. We also meet a whole crew of their friends, like Espada, a matador, and his sultry lover, Mercedes. But all's not well in this Spanish paradise. Lorenzo, Kitri's father, declares that his daughter isn't going to marry some poor barber, but instead a foppish but rich nobleman named Gamache. Right as this is all going down, Don Quixote and Sancho arrive on a horse and a donkey, respectively. Yes, we have reached the donkey and join the festivities. Don Quixote sees Kitri and, in his regular way, believes that she's his love, Dulcinea, making the love triangle between Basilio, Kitri, and Gamache suddenly a love square. Amid all the merriment, Kitri and Basilio manage to sneak off, hotly pursued by the Don, Sancho, Lorenzo, Gamache, the horse, and the donkey. This first act is full of fabulous dancing and glorious sets and costumes. From the beginning, this ballet was all about integrating Spanish dancing into ballet, with Penipa asking Minkus for everything from a muñera to a zingara to a jota to a Spanish rose dance. Some of the folk dances appear as danced by the court of ballet in large groups and character shoes, while others are meshed with classical ballet to create this particular Spanish look. The choreography for Quitri, Basilio, Espada, and Mercedes, in particular, blends Spanish folk steps with virtuosic ballet. Keep an eye out for the way arm gestures seem pulled from flamenco dance, for the big kicks and leaps, including the Kitri jump, made famous by Soviet dancer Maya Plisitskaya, where the dancer almost kicks herself in the head. And then, of course, the horse and the donkey. The original Bolshoi production didn't have animals. I guess Petipa thought that the crying moon was more than enough. But when he restaged the ballet in St. Petersburg the next year, he insisted. After all, Sancho Panza's donkey and Don Quixote's horse, Rocinante, are important characters in the book. Unfortunately, the first donkey that Mariansky found, rented from a burlesque theater for 200 rubles, was just too frail and died from stress. Oops. The second donkey, this time for the Bolshoi Theater upon the ballet's revival in 1873, fared better. It was borrowed for free from the zoo in Moscow. 75 kopecks a day went to its keeper, who rode it to and from the theater. Then, when Anna Pavlova brought the ballet to London in the early 20th century, she borrowed some horses who were just a little too chubby to be a convincing Rusinante, so the theater's makeup artists got on the task, doing their job so well that the SPCA showed up after concerned phone calls from the audience. And our very own donkey, Johnny Appleseed, starred in our production for 10 years after answering an ad in the newspaper. He even achieved a modicum of internet fame for his daily walks around Hayes Valley in 2015. He recently passed away in his early 20s, so auditions are currently underway for a new donkey star. But okay, enough about the donkeys. Act two. Kitri and Basilio, trying to escape her father, sneak into a traveler camp where they explain their predicament and get the travelers to agree to help them. When the whole crew, Lorenzo, Don Quixote, and Sancho Panza, led by Gamache on the donkey, arrives at the camp, the travelers distract them with a puppet show. This is an iconic Petipa moment, 
Some version of a puppet show dates back to the earliest Bolshoi production, and it tells the whole story in miniature, with puppets that depict Kitri, Basilio, Lorenzo, and Gamache. But Don Quixote yet again gets confused and thinks one of the puppets is his Dulcinea, his dream woman. So he attacks the puppet stage, causing everyone else to scatter. Still disoriented, he thinks that a windmill is a giant, and he attacks it too, before collapsing with exhaustion. While knocked out, Don Quixote has a vivid dream that he sees his Dulcinea, danced by the same dancer who plays Kitri, and that he meets Cupid, the queen of the dryads, and her court. When he awakens, Sancho drags him off to a tavern. Kitri and Basilio are already there, still pursued by Lorenzo and Gamache. Much tavern dancing ensues until Lorenzo discovers Kitri and demands that she come home and marry Gamache. Basilio and Kitri beg to be allowed to marry, and when Lorenzo refuses, Basilio threatens to stab himself. Which he does. Except, this is a comedy, so it's fake, but only Kitri knows. Basilio begs Lorenzo to allow him to marry Kitri as his dying wish, and he also recruits Don Quixote to his side. Supporting a dying wish does seem to be the chivalric thing to do, after all. As soon as Lorenzo Laurent as soon as Lorenzo relents, up Basilio pops, good as new. Act two is clearly where most of the action takes place, and it is also full of beautiful dancing. Keep an eye out for the travelers and how their movements differ from the peasants in the town. And in the dream scene, you'll want to look for the Kitri slash Dulcinea character to be able to really change personalities. As Kitri, she's fiery and sexy, but here she's regal and pure. The Queen of the Dryads and Cupid give other dancers an opportunity to shine. Look for crisp technique and a high contrast between these two characters. And watch, of course, for Basilio in the tavern. It's the comedic high point of the ballet. See if you can track how exactly he fakes his death. And, of course, if you've listened to enough of these podcasts, you'll know that there will be an Act 3, and that Act 3 will be a wedding. Many friends and acquaintances return, including Espada and Mercedes, and, of course, Don Quixote and Sancho Panza, who come to wish the couple well. A big wedding celebration ensues, and everyone lives happily ever after, with the Don and Sancho heading off to their next big adventure. The final act is all about the big wedding pot de deux. What would a 19th century ballet be without it? Kitri and Basilio get to show off for the crowd and for each other in a duet that's become a regular feature at ballet galas and competitions. The catch? It is much harder after dancing the rest of a two-hour ballet. Watch especially for the two dancers' variations, what we in the ballet world would call solos. The double turns in the air for Basilio's, how Kitri manipulates her fan, and her hops on point, which are harder than they look, and for their series of consecutive turns in the coda, or in the last little segment. Although not as famous as the Fuete turns in Swan Lake, these are just as impressive and are a place where dancers put their own spin, pun very much intended, on the choreography, adding in tricks with fans, multiple turns, and sometimes changes of direction. And that is that. A total rom-com with some of the most spectacular dancing in the classical canon. If you're in the market for Spanish lovers, live animals, pyrotechnic dancing, or just a trip to sunny Spain in the depths of January rain, it rhymed, we have you covered. 
So thank you again for tuning into the first episode of season two of To The Point and meet me right back here for previews of the rest of the season's performances. If you haven't checked out our other podcasts, including recordings of our popular Meet the Artist interviews and points of view lectures, you should get on that. You can find them on our website or on any podcasting app, including Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, Overcast, Stitcher, whatever your favorite one is. Hit subscribe and you'll get our episodes downloaded as soon as they're posted. In addition, please, please, please do leave us a rating and review in the Apple Store and reach out on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at SF Ballet. We love to hear from you and your ratings and reviews help us reach new and bigger audiences. Thank you for listening and see you at the Opera House.